Namaste. As part of writings of Sri Aurobindo, we take up today the second book, which is part of a single book, Collected Works of Sri Aurobindo 25. So one part we had taken, The Human Cycle. And the second one is the ideal of human unity. And the third is war and self-determination. So they were all serialized in the Arya. And this book, of course, the ideal of human unity was published in a little bit of haste because of the war conditions. So it came out as a small booklet in 1919. And later on, uh, because that was a time of intense European conflict. And then eventually in 1950... Uh, Shurbindo wrote a postscript chapter following the Second World War and that is also there as part of the book. So it's an amazing book. There is a little bit of um, interesting history about um, this one of the passages that Shurbindo wrote as a postscript chapter which was in 1950 or 49 or 50, most likely it is 50. So during the 1962 war when there was the Indo-China conflict. Then um, Nehru sent someone to US, uh, not someone, the then ambassador, and I have heard it from the horse's mouth. So he went and met uh, John Kennedy. He wanted to meet and night three o'clock. And but anyways, he called at early V hours of early morning or rather night. The meeting was arranged, the CIA chief was also there. And he said that, you know, we need help because China is overrunning you. No, it, come, it had come up to Jorhat and Tezpur, Jorhat, all these places were overrun. And then he asked him that where are these uh, troops deployed? So he said, I'm sorry, I don't know much about Northeast because I have not been posted there. <laughs> this was the answer of the Indian diplomat. He said, no problem. He called the CIA chief. He said, tell me the positions. He brought down the map and he could exactly pinpoint where are the troops. And then Kennedy says, um, but why you people didn't listen to somebody in India who had already seen all this two years back? He said, who had foreseen all this? So he pulled out, the then American president, John Kennedy, pulled up, pulls out this book, The Human Cycle. And he points out to a passage where Shurabindu has written about the danger of Red China overrunning Tibet and occupying masses of India, entering into India. So he was now nonplussed. He said two years back he has written, he said, sorry sir, but um, this has been actually 1950, Shurabindu had left the body physically. So he was quite surprised that somebody at that point of time could foresee all this. Then, of course, he said, anyways, you are a democracy and we need to help you. And um, whatever aid he gave or didn't give, I don't know about that part of the story. But, of course, we know that the mother did help during that time by her occult force. And um, she said at one point, the Chinese were more receptive because she was just telling them, go back. And they turned back for very unexpected reasons. I have been posted to Jorhat, so I can understand what it means. So this is the uh, fascinating part. But more importantly, the important aspect is that how Mother and Shurvindo were working, not just for individual emancipation or showing a path to some few individuals who can do some meditation practice and, you know, uh, 
maybe form a group, a cult or a sect and be liberated into nirvana. That was not, that is one part of the story. Because there are three terms through which the divine manifests himself, the individual. And we see largely the focus of um, spirituality has been on individual emancipation. Then there is the larger which is universal, the collective. So that has been given to religion, politics, administration. That's how, you know, where large masses of mankind. And then we have the transcendental. Um, these are the three terms in which we have to rediscover ourselves. So Shurbindo, at that point of time, when hardly people were busy even getting freedom from the imperialist powers, Shurbindo was seeing far ahead into the future. What will happen when these nations are liberated, these nation souls are being formed, what kind of shapes, unity will take place? Because we see in nature there are two tendencies or rather three tendencies. There is an underlying unity which is true, atomic, look at matter. Uh, what is? What are these different objects made up of? All of atom. There is an underlying unity. Look at the plant kingdom you'll see that there is a common element which is called the plant cell. Even look at the human mind with all its variation. Go back to the common origin of sounds and speech. It's very fascinating because that's how the mind becomes operational. Mind works even in animals. But with the coming of speech and before speech, seed sounds. That's why Shubindu's work on the seed sounds, root sounds, the commonality of these sounds and then evolving evolution of expression in different ways is the common base, substratum. So this is, there is a common element which where unity is there. There is a oneness deep below in creation. And then there is the other tendency of individual variation. So within the larger unit, unity, there are individual units and they, there is a lot of variation allowed. So we see the genus, the species, the family and the species and even within the species you will see different kind of variations which nature enjoys. So the third term is unity in diversity. So there is the unity which is underlying the essential oneness of all things and which, which is inevitable because the origin is one. And then there is a tremendous diversity which takes two forms. One is individual and there is group diversity. So there is a formation of groups which come together. This process becomes more and more evident uh, in animals, higher animals. Though it is there even in uh, lower creatures, even in plants. The mother once spoke about the eucalyptus trees. That if this tree, one of the tree goes, um, the rest also have a tendency to go away. She spoke about roses as being a little jealous. They don't like to be with others. You know, they are very pretty elitist So, <laughs> in their temperament. So they don't like. That's why they have these thorns, you know. Don't get too close to me, only roses are allowed. So there, this tendency is there, but it's not conscious. Nature loves all, all kinds of things. So in human beings also, there are these two tendencies. One is to develop the individual through a large liberty and freedom. Because that's the condition. You can't develop if there is no freedom. Um, the second tendency is to form grouping. Now, group life means by its nature a certain kind of um, commonality. Now, this is the second. But this commonality must allow for divergences, for you know different kinds of diverse 
individuality is that's where the challenge lies so in ancient times all this now we have already entered the ideal of human unity where in through several chapters in part 1 shubhendra describes how nature has tried to balance out these two tendencies so for example one was the earliest in the beginning how did groupings form they were natural so tribes people grew up in a certain soil they learned understood certain social ways of life which was part of their growing up process so take for example you know that there was a safety within a certain area so later on it was made into a rule that don't go beyond and this rule persisted so much that at one point of time in india and i'm sure something of like this was in different ways in other places so if you traveled abroad so it was like if you come back from sat samundar par you have to undergo a proper shuddhikaran process it was you know because one nation unit was not yet ready and you know there was a real risk of your losing yourself in that larger mass of mankind with very different kinds of ways of life so there was uh, some logic behind it at a certain stage of evolution then there were certain practices where we um hear about individual human sacrifice way back not uh, <laughs> recent way way back still in some very tribal areas it may be there and of course there are religions where though they are no more tribals but still it continues because they grew up from the tribes and they continue to have that same uh, processes so again we can't imagine human beings being sacrificed why were human beings being sacrificed to teach see humanity is very crude to teach that no individual can be bigger than the um than the group life so this was a way <laughs> that's how we see the story of bhim and hidimba is a very fascinating tale so bhim um, you know hidim picks him up and then he wants to sacrifice bhima and then they will all have a nice feast but they have got the wrong fish have caught a whale instead of and naturally there is a fight and then bhima ultimately overthrows him then he becomes the king and he marries hidemba so that story is very fascinating there were tribes like that and they would uh, sacrifice the best the fittest to remind that even if you are the best and the fittest the group life is more important of course this is very crude thankfully it has gone but for a long long time all this existed and then there was within india the codification then there was a religious way to bring these groups together so there were codifications of life so moses came and gave the 10 commandments because he realized that uh, they are free from the slavery of ramses and the egyptian pharaohs but they are still slaves to their own desires and ways of life so he gave the 10 commandment beautiful movie i think those of us who have seen it Uh, one of the classics ten commandments then in india we had um, codification by manu here shobindu says something very interesting he says uh, it is debatable and doubtful whether actually manu as a human king existed so he speaks of manu as uh, beings of the subtle worlds who influence the mind of man there were early attempts of creating a kind of code manu smriti so it came as a smriti to mankind that this is the way of life then you add the later on the law of muhammad that this is how you should be hadith you have to live life like this live life like that so it was a way when nation unit has not come into existence really speaking and therefore people tried to find a 
group and individual balance through these means then we read last time about reason came up and reason took over all this it overthrew all this nothing doing with you know you received an inspiration or you have received something by smriti or the you know law of moses eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth we must build a society on a more rational principle so you have the democratic system the legislatures the rule and all these have come so this is the third, second way and then with that started nation units because earlier it was based on religion then became very difficult not in india but you know the moment religion becomes then you can't form a nation unit it tries to convert everything into that uh, common tendency so these were the tussles which were going on on the other side how nature uh, you know this tendency of religion to codify now um, what nature did was it threw up the administrator as the king so king became the great he became a law unto himself so his word was supposed to be he was supposed to be for instance in india the upholder of the law so he became the um, you know inheritor or in some way representative of vishnu so that's how we see there was a conflict between the king and religion so in the uh, western context it took very uh, unique turns we all know that that religion and uh, uh, the society the priestly class and the and the scientific uh, rational method they came into clash conflict uh, all that turmoil happened until finally science and democracy and rational processes won over religion this was in the western context in india it became ingrained that while the king will govern but he will for all um, you know wisdom purposes where he cannot understand his thinking may be perplexed there may be situations which he is not trained or equipped to deal with so he would take the help of the uh, the priest seer so you have king dashratha who is consulting rishi vasisht vishwamitra so this was the one way that unification this larger units and the smaller unit they they tried to bring together then nature because it's also pressing towards a international unity world unity ultimately that is going to come nature started this process also see when we look at it from this point of view it is so fascinating so there was the age of empires so there were people who who were driven by this impulse to create empires now we may judge as right and wrong but if you look at it very impersonally nature's way of bringing large masses of mankind together and there were mixtures there were you know efforts to assimilate integrate and then you know something new being created so in india also this was there but it was in the form of kingdoms expanding beyond their kingdom and that was the way in india was very beautiful i mean not because big pies but and shubindu speaks about it here the, the way was ashwamed yagya and rajasoya yagya so if you look at it ashwamed yagya that itself is very fascinating so this yagya it was a yagya by yagya it means that okay all these kingdoms which come within now my range uh, they will have an equal share in the prosperity equal share in protection so yagya by its nature means that so when these kingdoms were won over the king was primarily the one who looked after in terms of the military interest and in terms of certain economic interest but otherwise all the janapads the smaller units were given lot of freedom 
so you had the panchayat you had the little people gathering together deciding on issues so the king was not you know so there were two tendencies which were acting one was the centripetal which is everything should be concentrated on to the king referred to the king and the other was centrifugal where each unit has its own freedom to lead its way of life you can't interfere with it and we see today also in nation both these tendencies work centripetal tendencies and the centrifugal tendency and should be the puts as if with the final seal of authority is that where a nation unit has been formed over years of shaping reshaping whatever centrifugal tendencies uh, maybe there will be there and will try but they cannot dislodge because it is something established so he gives two very interesting examples which i found he said france it went through so much change the roman empire came even for a while the british the english people took over and yet the romans remained gallic you know you must have read those asterisks the people of the gaul they remained gallic right up to you know modern times it just continued to that identity they kept bringing out again and again through all these issues and then of course something which is very old but uh, still continuing modern and it's about the catalonians you may have heard about catalonians and spain so catalonians believe they have a separate identity and they want to be separate you know but uh, he says that the larger identity of spain will remain you won't be able to free yourself because there is that larger spaniard this you know that identity which which cannot so the formation of nation unit where heterogeneous elements of humanity can come together and yet form a kind of unity has been the first successful attempt the age of empires has gone it has done its work it was needed so that it can bring masses of humanity together mix match um awaken them or prime them for the need of a subsequent far off dream of world unity so to that extent it has done its purpose and when the purpose is over it has gone so when we look at all this from that larger perspective it is something so fascinating so he speaks even about russia and then in the process of forming the world unity i am just compressing instead of going through all the chapters fascinating book so he speaks about that there may be a possibility after the nation unit for continents to come together and he speaks about coming together of europe as a single unit and he speaks about the dangers he speaks about the dangers because the moment you have a european unit as europe now we have already you no know, european union eu so there will rise as a reaction an asiatic unit which is what we see recent conflict also and he says that there will be parts of russia which may be torn whether they will owe a western allegiance or they will belong to asia so there will be a kind of situation and in that context he says a perilous situation as arisen with regard to china now looks like shubhendra is just reading the present while way back in the past and then he says in case the russia and the communist china come together then it will be a real perilous situation for the world so if there is a clash of continents then of course there will be a united states of america united states of europe now within asia if there is a united asia there is a problem so he says that it's quite likely that there will be number of federations federated unity so if you see this um, sark and all this asean this uh, this was the 
way to create a balance. Somebody had this wonderful sight that we must have a confederation of countries, India with India as the hub, which was meant to counteract the Red China. Something very interesting. Uh, and Shurbindo was not much in favor of a non-alignment. He said, future will not allow that. Because you will be too small a fry, you will be run over with the larger world units which are going to arise. And if continents clash, then you know, just imagine it's right on the brink. Imagine if America and Europe come together and on one side is Russia and China. Can we imagine what kind of massive conflict there would be? And all these dangers he has foreseen. So what about forming a world state? So there also he says there is a danger. What is the danger? Who will form? You see, if there is one country and there he says the tendency through League of Nations, then the United Nations organization, it's a good thing to start with, but it is not going to work out because uh, one powerful country will start controlling it. Then he speaks about a group of powerful countries which will come together and form as the, you know, world state kind of a you can, not oligarchy obviously, but uh, four or five heads of state. Uh, see, this too has been given a different turn by the veto power given to certain countries. And it was to the greatest, one of the great blunders that India did was not just about giving up Tibet. But the greater blunder was to give away the veto power to China at a point of time. India was being proposed for the veto power and uh, the then Prime Minister, he just... Uh, so, he vetoes everything that, you know, you can imagine. So, this is how the world forces are advancing. On one side, they are trying to coalesce larger and larger units. And on the other side, with each unit unity, there is another problem which comes up. And that is about the individual's liberty. So, here again, Shabindu brings out, there are three terms in terms of the social march of mankind. First is individual liberty. That's important. The second is unity. So when there is an excessive stress on unity, it is at the cost of individual liberty. Whether you do it by law or a state control, state control is even worse. State-controlled socialism. Though socialism is a wonderful idea. It's a thing of the future. But it can only be based on a Vedantic principle. Otherwise, as a reaction to it comes capitalism and American capitalism versus <laughs> socialism of Asia, they are going to clash. So, there is this idea of <coughs> unity at the expense of individual liberty. And now all these tendencies are becoming so clear that you can see it on the wall. China is supposed to be a socialist state and look where is the individual liberty, even in Russia, where is the individual liberty? On the other hand, if you have individual liberty given prominence, then you will enter into an age of competitive uh, capitalism. <laughs> Each individual. Now it's like whoever is fittest and best. So that's what we see in America. Now it's at another peril because the masses get crushed. Another kind of elitism begins to come. Not elitism, but commercial barbarism. And all this nature is trying when we look at it. For instance, how do we look at the rise of the Brahmin and the Kshatriya in a certain age and then their decline and near vanish, vanishing thing? It's for this very reason. Because nature will not allow only one group of mankind to prosper. So it has its age and term. It is necessary. But the moment the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas entered into an elitist stage, that's when they passed a death sentence on their own. 
you know, <laughs> evolution. And therefore, nature brought down. That, that's exactly what happened in the Trojan War. So we see that, um, you know, Troy was an extremely developed civilization. When you look at what their achievements were in every uh, culture, um, technology, science, everything, it was a developed civilization. Whereas all around were the Greek tribes. If you leave aside one or two people like Odysseus and maybe, you know, to an extent, Achilles, few others. Otherwise, what kind of a, maybe Menelaus, I wouldn't bet for Agamemnon. I mean, that fellow, <laughs> that fellow. I mean, they were tribes and they were fighting with each other. But suddenly nature brought them together. Why? Because of Helen. One woman who, you know, a thousand, there is a beautiful saying, I think, who has written, a thousand ships were sailed for the beauty of a woman, Helen, just for her. Thousand ships sailed and eventually there was such war at that point of time is worth reading, Iliad and Odyssey. And if you want to read only from Shurbindo, please read Ilion. It's amazing. And uh, that is the time when we see that Asia and almost coming together to conflict, at, le- at least portion of Asia. So this is how uh, there have been all these tendencies going on and eventually Troy was brought down because the Greece had to develop as a, uh, you know, it has its own culture, it has its own beauty. Hellenic culture came post-Trojan uh, War. And then something, another very interesting thing, he even speaks about Greece. Greece was also part of other empires. But Greece continued in certain ways to keep its kind of cultural identity. So there, these forces have been working together, moving this world in various ways. We think it is all events, outer accidents, chance events, one ambitious king, another great warrior. But behind all these tendencies, there is this nature which is moving us towards a grand fulfillment of the world scheme. It is far off. World unity is not a day's event, but yet that dream is towards the fulfillment. One of the ways that the mother, before we read now, one of the ways that the mother actually brought this dream close was Auroville. She spoke about Auroville. She said people have come together always to fight. So in Auroville, um, how many countries, 170 or something, people from different places came together to build so she speaks of it as a tower of Babel in reverse. And they have come together, their common effort will prevent the war, the third world war, and in, it will have its occult action upon humanity. That's why we see Auroville struggling with divisive tendencies. That's why we see, for instance, now the conflict in Auroville. Old world idea of democracy and the minds way of resolving things. And the spiritual... Um, Impulse which is awakening in mankind. It is still struggling how to find the right balance, but Nietzsche will find the balance. So all this he discusses, uh, all beautiful chapters, wonderful. But I'll come to that part. We'll read a little bit about from uh, the last three chapters, which ultimately lead us to the solution or what is going to happen. So one of the things which eventually through all this that mankind will develop, which will lead towards a true unity. So Shubindu, through all these chapters, is nature's past attempt, why they failed? Because they were political unities, religious unities. There, are not, there is not the change in the heart. 
Man does not want unity. So, unless man wants unity, it cannot endure. And man, if man is to want unity as well as you have to allow for the individual freedom, it can only come when a larger sentiment and intellect to begin with and later a spiritual conversion takes place along the lines of the religion of humanity. So what is this religion of humanity? Very beautifully describes. It's not the way we understand but it starts with that. It starts with this intellectual idea that man is the Godhead. Instead of worshipping this, that, man. So humanity is one. This is something very interesting. This, this has come up in today's times, a very strong impulse. That humanity is one. What does it matter if you are different in uh, caste, creed, culture, religion, countries, but humanity is one. This impulse has come as an intellectual idea as well as it is beginning to move as a common sentiment of humanity. And Shubhind is writing all this, 19, 14, 15, 16, 17. Uh, of course, uh, positivism had started a kind of scientific rationalism, but this has come more and more today. So he speaks of uh, the religion of humanity may be either an intellectual and sentimental ideal, a living dogma with intellectual, psychological and practical effects, or else a spiritual organization and rule of living, partly the sign, partly the cause of a change of soul in humanity. So here also we see that there have been efforts. For instance, there was the effort of the Khalsa Panth. So Guru Gobind Singh Ji and all of them, you know, they, they formed a group which was basically an attempt to form a spiritualized society. But one of the important tenets was Seva. So in that you will see that this idea of Langar and you know, doesn't matter who you are and something very interesting. I have had, uh, of course, we also had this in Durga Puja and it's something so nice. You just walk into a langar. Nobody asks you who you are. <laughs> I've had uh, langar in uh, lay, and it's so nice. You just enter into the Gurudwara and you don't pay any money. And you have a community kitchen, Sanja Chula. These were all ways of trying to organize a unit. It failed because again, when you uh, ultimately fall back upon outer dogmas, then it tends to fail. But it created an impress upon the race. Same thing we see some of the uh, institutions under the name of Vivekananda. We may not understand them. That why they are into so much of, you know, uh, philanthropic services and, uh, you know. But this is part of the work. This is not the ultimate. But it is the intellectual and sentimental background which is being laid. Not yet the real and final work which Shubhinda speaks about the spiritual evolution. But it has its own place. So, uh, the intellectual religion of humanity already to a certain extent exists. That's more in the Western context we see. Partly as a conscious creed in the minds of a few, partly as a potent shadow in the consciousness of the race. It is a shadow of a spirit that is yet unborn, but is preparing for its birth. This material world of ours, besides its fully embodied things of the present, is peopled by such powerful shadows, ghosts of things dead and the spirit of things yet unborn. So the ghosts of things dead are very troublesome actualities and they now abound. Ghosts of dead religions, dead arts, dead moralities, dead political theories which still claim either to keep their rotting bodies or to animate partly 
the existing body of things. Now you see how what happens. So you want to create a religion of humanity. But religion comes in the way. <laughs> you must convert to a particular religion. Then only you are worthy even of a human being. So this religion of humanity is going to break all these molds. They are dead. But they continue to exist as ghosts in the mind. So all this he points out very beautifully that how they hypnotize and prevent the unborn spirit to take birth. So among them he speaks of philanthropy, social service and other kindred activities have been its outward expression of good works. Democracy, socialism, pacifism are to a great extent its byproducts or at least owe much of their vigor to its inner presence. The fundamental idea is that mankind is the Godhead to be worshipped and served by man and that the respect, the service, the progress of the human being and human life are the chief duty and the chief aim of the human spirit. I think we, somebody had posted one of those aphorisms by Shirobindo that if you have done even little good to humanity, however obscure, however limited it may be, yet you are considered among the ranks of God's servitors and yet it is a limited ideal. Now that's what Shurbinda himself points out and even the mother reveals. And yet it is necessary at a certain stage of human development. You can't leap. So there are people who want to leap and suddenly says we are all, you know, uh, God's own children. <laughs> but what about human beings? Oh, they are... Again we have this risk, ghost of the past, to create a kind of eliticism within uh, what is meant to <laughs> create a universal consciousness. So all these dangers, these tendencies will be there and that's why one should read Shurbindo before <laughs> practicing these uh, ideas. So, No other idol, neither the nation, the state, the family, nor anything else ought to take its place. They are only worthy of respect so far as they are images of the human spirit and enshrine its presence and aid its self-manifestation. Again, the dangers of misquoting Shurabindo. If you just quote this, it will appear Shurabindo is endorsing all this. Yes, as a step, Shurabindo brings everything and puts it in its right place. That's the beauty of Shurabindo. Without denying everything, but lifts it to its ultimate possibility its core value, its deeper essence and how the true spirit can manifest. But where the cult of these idols seeks to usurp the place of the spirit and makes demands inconsistent with its service, they should be put aside. No injunctions of old creeds, religious, political, social or cultural are valid when they go against its claims. So that is the whole idea in religion of humanity. And he discusses all the different ways how bodily life, the, the, the life of man and the mind of man is to be uh, released from the bonds, allowed freedom and range and opportunity uh, given all its means of training. And so on he, he reveals to us all that is possible. And then he goes on to Reveal to us things like charity and service of mankind. But this is the question whether a purely intellectual and sentimental religion of humanity will be sufficient to bring about so great a change in our psychology. 
and that's where the question comes that unless deep within we evolve you can create an idea and an idea can color it can influence us a lot and even a sentiment can help us move take a leap for a certain period but after a while if there is no real change inside it tends to wither away that's what we see has happened the weaknesses of the intellectual idea even when it supports itself by an appeal to the sentiments and emotions is that it does not get at the center of man's being that's where the problem lies the if the core is still the ego if the core is still desire then all our philanthropy our uh, you know altruism everything will become a means to aggrandize the ego so this is where he wants to reveal to us the intellect and the feelings are only instruments of the being and they may be the instruments of either its lower and external form or the inner and higher man servants of the ego or channels of the soul so we can do this even apparently what can appear as outwardly service of humanity but it is not done with the idea of serving humanity but to serve the godhead within to release him from the imprisonment to the ego and help the soul move upward or it can be done to aggrandize the ego that look so many free things have been distributed so many poor people have been given money so that's where the danger lies and then he says that uh, there are three kindred ideas liberty equality and fraternity none of these have really been one in spite of all the progress that has been achieved the liberty that has been um so loudly proclaimed as an essential of modern progress is an outward mechanical and unreal liberty the equality that has been so much sought after and battled for is equally an outward and mechanical and will turn out to be an unreal equality fraternity is not even claimed to be a practicable principle of the ordering of life and what is put forward as its substitute is the outward and mechanical principle of equal association or the best a comradeship of labor so he says that ultimately the key lies actually in fraternity freedom equality brotherhood are three godheads of the soul they cannot be really achieved through the external machinery of society you may forcibly say that all human beings are equal and you may have a system wherein you can practice it but until that inner thing has changed then this practice will very easily break down or become a means for subjugating other masses of mankind this is the danger so he says uh, but they cannot be really achieved through external machinery of society or by man so long as he lives only in the individual and the communal ego where the ego claims liberty it arrives at competitive individualism that's what we see in the american context when it asserts equality it arrives first at strife then at an attempt to ignore the variations of nature and as the soul we are doing that successfully it constructs an artificial and machine made society a society that pursues liberty as its ideal is unable to achieve equality a society that aims at equality will be obliged to sacrifice liberty for the ego to speak of fraternity is for it to speak of something contrary to its nature so even in a house speak about fraternity brotherhood even in a house people fight is religion speech loudly proclaim brotherhood they kill each other much more that is a paradox 
than killing someone else. And then he says, yet brotherhood is the key to the triple gospel. The unity of liberty and equality can only be achieved by the power of human brotherhood and it cannot be founded on anything else. Brotherhood exists only in the soul and by the soul. It can exist by nothing else. So Sri Krishna's beautiful Mame Vansh, the moment we understand, when Mother was asked, she said very simply, how can humanity be, become one? She said, by becoming conscious of its origin. That's why you see all in all our uh, Puranas and uh, Purana is a kind of history. So this history starts with God and how creation started. So if we become aware of that one, oneness, then variations, everything is fine. To an extent in India it was there, but you know, because of all these uh, influences, now we don't know how to adapt and find the new balance. For the brotherhood is not a matter either of physical kinship or of vital association or of intellectual agreement. When the soul claims freedom, it is the freedom of its self-development. What is true freedom? I should be allowed to develop along my own unique lines. So that's an impossibility in communist China. I mean, why communist China? I remember this experience going to Russia and um, they had stopped two of us uh, and that brotherhood, that was an interesting experience because two were stopped and two of us uh, were led through. And we are wondering, it was a very, you know, very anxious situation. <laughs> what happened to these two ashram inmates? So then after some time he says, who are they? I say, they are my friends. So why they have come here? They are my friends, so I have invited them. Who will bear the experience? expenses? I'll say, I'll bear the experience, expenses. Why you will bear the expenses? Says it because we believe in brotherhood. So then he didn't know what to say. <laughs> because we believe in brotherhood. What so? You should not have a problem understanding it. That was a very indirect kind of kataksh. So then he said, Krishna. Now this was the interesting part. Krishna. So I didn't understand. Thankfully. So I, didn't, I said, what is he asking? The only thing closest that came to me was quiche, which is a dish. So I said, what is he asking? Krishna. So like that he's saying. So I said, no, nothing to do with that. <laughs> Krishna's uh, trick, huh? he made me <laughs> hurt some hear something else. And then he says, okay. Then it seems that there is such a strong lobby of the missionaries that they don't allow. And Krishna consciousness has infiltrated there. So now they don't want. So you see, what kind of freedom you have? You have equality, but you can't practice freely. So you can't even hold a uh, you know, let's say a meeting together where you, like this is the difference. Now, if you go to America, you can have a Shurabindo meet and officially you can go that, you know, Shurabindo meet, I've been asked to come as a speaker and they say, it's okay. I can go for a Krishna meet. But in Russia, if you say any religious meet other than a Christian meet, you will not be, you know, 100 questions, you won't be granted visa. This is the situation. In China, no way. You have to do all those clandestine ways, if at all. So this is the problem, that when you try to create equality, you take away liberty. That's precisely what they've been doing, brainwashing and everything. So similarly, but the, the true freedom is, I should be allowed the freedom to pursue my own line of self-development. Then, when it claims, now self-development, not self-destruction, that I can go and kill anybody and that's freedom. Obviously, that's a very... 
primitive age of society when it claims equality what it is claiming that freedom equally for all and the recognition of the same soul the same godhead in all human beings see now we understand what is this ashram is a beautiful experiment for all the three you have the freedom to pursue even in this yoga the way you want there are people who never have never come to the samadhi well lived here for 50 years mind you and i have asked them ki darshan de challa hai nahi nahi humko zarurat nahi hai i i don't they just don't feel the need they don't explain it's fine have you read savitri no no but they are here and the mother and shobindo have developed this along such lines of individual freedom which is unimaginable the dress you will wear how you will connect at the samadhi there is no common code there is nothing like every ashramite has to visit the ashram every day not that this is a desirable or undesirable i mean i feel it's foolish why won't one but that's my view but somebody else you want to go you don't want to go you stand there in front of samadhi like this you bow down you put an incense you walk around and there are fantastic things somebody has even gone and asked t-shirt yahan milta hai kya so that also has happened because you know you you are now look at it you are given individual liberty how you use it is between you and the divine based on that you progress or you go down it's up to you that sincerity equally now you see the equality everybody has an equal opportunity to grow into that in your own way but it is not an equality where you are allowed or a freedom where you are allowed to do nuisance not an equality where everybody is you know ironed out into a uniformity so that's the beauty and the third fraternity it's like i have realized it uh, in strange ways there was a man who was um, who used to drink and very foul mouth and all kinds of things and i had a little rub with him when i came in the beginning to the ashram and he was not an ashramite but free floater and uh, he came in the dispensary was sitting he came to actually appreciate me because he had read one of my letters in monte he was pretty intellectually oriented person but i saw the smell of alcohol and i said get out from here and he said who are you to tell me to get out i said look here this space you have to respect and then he said who space is this now he started intellectually arguing ha huh? <laughs> so i said you have a point i understand but then at this point of time so there was he literally came to blows he said i can i'll put a dagger into your heart i said i am also a military person you try that stunt and i'll so it went to that extent and he tried he would try to you know so it it continued for some time then one day see how you you pick up this idea of fraternity this was for me a sobering experience and i think for so one day i saw him i was sitting at the samadhi and i one day saw him moving around the samadhi of course like a half crazy fellow and then he is looking at the samadhi like this then he bowed down that day i had a change of heart i said whatever it be if this is what this fellow has come to it's okay so um, mother has her ways after two three days he came and uh, again so i told him look here um, i i have a change of heart towards you the beauty is he said even i have a change of heart towards you i said well uh, i have realized that you have love for mother i told him this sentence and that's enough for me and you know what he said who else is there whom one can love it came as a shocker i couldn't imagine that behind all these appearances there is this man <laughs> who i cannot cannot could not see 
So this was a beautiful experience and that is how one begins to then see that behind all the appearances there is this bond deeper connection between human beings there are invisible links which bind us towards the sun that's what i was saying he plant life is tied by two uh, threads one is the visible which is cast into the soil they are different but the invisible links are to the sun and every plant is moving towards that so when we catch that invisible thread when then we discover the unity uh, and fraternity then we discovered fraternity not only with human beings but with this creation at large so all this shurbindo reveals to us these three things are in fact the nature of the soul for freedom equality unity are the element attributes of the spirit that's why the divine allows things to blossom in its own way at the same time he is equal vision at the same time he treats all as part of one single family and we have these we have grown up in that thought ganika jamil vyad gid gajad kaltari gana and we know that how from the stone to the stars and from the most fallen outcast to the greatest of sages in all there is that one divine presence it is the awakening of the soul in man and the attempt to get him to live from the soul and not from his ego which is the inner meaning of religion and it is that to which the religion of humanity also must arrive before it can fulfill in the life of the race so what is being attempted here in shubhendu ashram people often say uh, what about humanitarianism philanthropy the ideal behind it is fine but you cannot fulfill it until you have discovered your own soul until you have realized the greater spiritual truth unless we are living from the soul and living for the sake of the divine in humanity in in this whole creation manifestation of the divine so this is where he uh, closes this book then there is a chapter on summary and conclusion and then the postscript i'll just read a little bit of that which i was mentioning in the postscript and it is something so fascinating how shirbindo was forcing all these things he speaks about league of nations and he speaks about united nations and if the third war which is regarded by many if not by most as inevitable does come it is likely to precipitate as inevitably a further step and perhaps the final outcome of this great world endeavor he is saying even if it happens it will help mankind to just like first world war brought out the league of nations the second brought out the uno it will only lead towards a um, precipitate the future so all this united nations peace keeping force all this is part of the working of nature towards that of course uh, we don't want the third world war and the mother has said that it it won't be now that the supermind has manifested he speaks about the defects of united nation organism and yet he does not want us to become pessimists and the five great powers which have been given see all these were attempts of nature to just imagine if this went through what a blunder we did in our uh, just imagine it was literally a oligarchy in the true sense of the word with america russia france and which is the fourth nation and india not china just imagine how different the world situation would be but this one little error change so much okay this view of the future may under present circumstances be stigmatized as a too facile optimism 
Shubhendu spoke about looking beyond the smash toward the new creation. But this turn of things is quite as possible as the most more disastrous turn expected by the pessimists. Since the cataclysm and crash of civilization, sometimes predicted by them, need not at all be the result of a new war. Mankind has a habit of surviving the worst catastrophes created by its own errors or by the violent turns of nature. And it must be so if there is any meaning in its existence. If its long history and continuous survival is not the accident of a self-organizing chance, fortuitously self-organizing chance, which it must be in a purely materialistic views of the nature of the world. If man is intended to survive and carry forward the evolution of which he is at present the head, and to some extent a half-conscious leader of the march, he must come out of his present chaotic international life and arrive at the beginning of organized united action, some kind of world state, unitary or federal, or a confederacy or a coalition, he must arrive at its end, no smaller or looser expedient would adequately serve the purpose. So here he speaks about, one of the possibilities suggested at the time was the growth of continental agglomerates. He united Europe, some kind of a combine of the peoples of the American continent, under the leadership of the United States. Is he speaking of today or yesterday? <laughs> Even possibly in the resurgence of Asia and its drive towards independence from the dominance of the European peoples, a drawing together for self-defensive combination of the nations of this continent. Such an eventuality um, of large continental combinations might even be a stage in the final formation of the world union. Okay, And this last one. In Asia, 1950, this is 2022. Many of Shubhendu's writings you feel he is writing today. In Asia, a more perilous situation has arisen. Standing sharply across the way to any possibility of a continental unity of the peoples of this part of the world in the emergence of communist China. This creates a gigantic block which could easily englobe the whole of Northern Asia in a combination between two enormous communist powers, Russia and China, and would overshadow with the threat of absorption Southwestern Asia and Tibet and might be pushed to overrun all up to the whole frontier of India, menacing her with security and that of Western Asia with the possibility of an invasion and an overrunning and subjection by penetration or even by overwhelming military force to an unwanted ideology, political and social institutions and dominance of this militant mass of communism whose push might easily prove irresistible. In any case, the continent would be divided between two huge blocks which might enter into active mutual opposition and the possibility of a stupendous world conflict would arise, dwarfing anything previously experienced. The possibility of any world union might, even without any actual outbreak of hostilities, be indefinitely postponed by the incompatibility of 
interests and ideologies on a scale which would render their inclusion in a single body hardly realizable. The possibility of a coming into being of three or four continental unions. So that's where we are speaking about. You see now this is happening. On one side quad, on the other side the coming together of you know the axis between or let's say alleys. <laughs> Japan, India and you know, some other countries. This work is going on. It's so fascinating to watch the world events from that perspective. On the other side, China trying to take this, of course, North Korea, Taiwan, coming right up to Sri Lanka. So all this is happening at the same time. And then he says, which might subsequently coalesce into a single unity would then be very remote and except after a world-shaking struggle, hardly feasible. So this, all this he has foreseen and that's why, and since he has foreseen all this, let us uh, remember that he has obviously worked to ensure that all these perils will eventually be turned into only as a means for a greater um, fulfillment. So I'll close with this last paragraph. This is a mutable world and uncertainties and dangers might assail or trouble for a time. The formed structure might be subjected to revolutionary tendencies as new ideas and forces emerged and produced their effect on the general mind of humanity. But the essential step would have been taken and the future of the race secured. So this is speaking of a federal order. But the future of the race secured. Or at least the present era overpassed in which it is threatened and disturbed by unsolved needs and difficulties, precarious conditions, immense upheavals, huge and sanguinary worldwide conflicts and the threat of others to come. The ideal of human unity would be no longer an unfulfilled ideal, but an accomplished fact, and its preservation given into the charge of the united human peoples. Its future destiny would be on the knees of the gods, and if the gods have a use for the continued existence of the race, may be left to lie there safe. So, one thing which he assured is that the earth will be saved, which way humanity will go will depend a lot on the choices we make, not just individually but as collectively. Now, of course, because we are confined to the book, but the mother has spoken a lot about all this subsequently and especially after the supramental manifestation. She actually foresaw that masses of humanity which will respond, what will not respond what happens to that mass of humanity which doesn't respond? Because right now nature is in the mode of a new creation. So just as when you, you know, all these tendencies and the new creation, in the closing we can compare with the baby which comes out of the womb. So while it is in the womb, it draws a lot of things from the mother and there is this covering which surrounds it like a protective sheath. But when the baby comes out of the womb, it comes through a lot of labor pain, there are pangs but once it comes out of the womb, all that which was surrounding it has to be discarded that is the process which will take place here also 
the new creation is there what will be discarded what will be integrated and become part of it is for the future to reveal